Welcome to the broadcast of Riverside Church in Princeton, North Carolina. Riverside Church preaching Christ and Him crucified. For more information, check out our website at www.riversidefwb.com. Your Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter number 17 tonight. If you remember, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and tonight will be no different. As we look in chapter 17, we need to do a little review to talk about what has taken place. Remember that David has been exiled from the throne of Israel. As he's leaving Israel's throne, it, this was the punishment that was prophesied by the prophet Nathan to him, that he will be brought, in, brought into public shame before all of Israel. And God uh, actually is he's chastising David. He's training him and teaching him. We saw how David was faced with Zimba in chapter 16. And Zimba was actually lying to David. And we learned from chapter 16 that just because you're a Christian don't mean that people are always going to be on the up and up with you. We have learned that sometimes people lie to you, even if you're a minister, amen, somebody. That people will lie to you even if you're a member of a church. Even if you go to church, people will still lie. That we are not immune to sin in the world. We also learned in chapter 15 that as he goes along, he faces shame as he comes across the man who curses him. We, we see that he gets called every name in the book. Now you remember back in I believe it was uh, back, back in the chapter uh, might be in 7 or 8 that David was walking and he was uh, he was insulted by Nabal and he got, a, he got a little angry. If you remember he was on his way to kill Nabal. And, and Nabal with his nickname being a fool he was on his way to kill him and Abigail showed up and talked him out of killing her husband at the time. Now a few years later it's in seasoning has gone on and so maturity has took place in David's life because now David has been insulted to his face and does not draw a shield, draw a sword to kill the offender. And isn't it good to know that the younger you would have probably swung your knuckles and knocked somebody out but as you mature, not that you grow older in your body but you mature before God. You actually mature and become holy before God. There should be evidences in your life as we look at the story of David, how David matured as as a, a godly king, going from being a young shepherd boy, full of fire and vigor, fighting the Philistines on up to now at this point, where he's being exiled and brought into shame by all the people who are up against him in his own kingdom. His own friends and even his own family have turned against him. But he has matured in such a way that he is trusting God through all of it. Amen? And, and as you reach for your Bible... I'm going to remind you that we choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It reports supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of prophecy. It's divine, not human in origin. We here at the river believe in the five solas. The first being, the first being scripture alone. The second being faith alone. The third being Christ alone. The fourth being grace alone. And the fifth being God alone receives the glory. And he'll receive the glory here tonight as we look in 2 Samuel chapter Chapter 17. I do hope you have a copy of God's Holy Word and you want to see my notes. Well, you open your Bible. There's the notes that we'll be looking at. I will also let you know that we'll be turning to 2 Corinthians tonight as well as Matthew when the time is right to do a little cross-reference in some teaching tonight. But if we look in 2 Samuel chapter 17, moreover, Athniel said to Absalom. Remember, Athniel was the, the confidant of David. He was his wise counselor. He was also Bathsheba's um, uncle. Now, some people might assess from this this uprising taking place between David and Absalom that Athenia was one behind the scenes 
pulling the strings, that he was actually the puppet master. But Absalom, he didn't need, he didn't need much help destroying himself and everyone around him. Asmiel said to Absalom, he's giving wise counsel here. He was a, he's a seasoned veteran. He says to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will rise and pursue David tonight. If there's anybody who can take out the old warrior David, it's Athniel. Athniel was one of the mighty men of David. He was a close counselor. But we will see that here that God will thwart the wisdom of Athniel. In chapter 17 verse 2, he says, I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. And I will strike down only the king. In verse number 2, Athenia says, I will go and take him out personally. I will lead with a, a, an elite squad. And we will go and take the one man who is between you and the throne. So Absalom is considering this in verse number 3. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of the man only, one man, and all the people will be at peace. He's saying if I get rid of David, the head, the leader, then the rest will fall into order. Actually, that's a very good idea. That there will be a strategic strike to kill David and then the throne will be yours, Absalom. It was good advice. It was wise advice. And the advice seen right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. I want you to let you know in verse 4 that the elders of Israel thought this was a good idea. But don't forget, back in chapter number 5, it was the elders of Israel who wanted David to be their king. It was just in chapter 5 that they came together to David at Hebron and said, be our king. They had, they were all in on David. They trusted David. But we can see how we are not to trust in people. Amen. Somebody. People will flip on a dime. Governments will flip on a dime. People, preferences, parties, congregations, churches, preachers, deacons, they all flip because people are fickle. Things change. But God does not change as we study the book of Hebrews. God does not lie and God does not change. Let that encourage you today. Maybe you were in good standing with somebody. Maybe you were you were really close to someone and something changed. Maybe it wasn't you, maybe it was them, but then you can rest assured that God does not change. His mercies are new every morning, like we read in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 through 23, that He does not change. Amen. Well, I feel like things are different between me and God. Well, I will assure you that God has not changed. He has not moved further away from you. You have drifted from Him. So let this be a, a calling to you to come close unto Him. The book of James says, draw not into Him and He'll draw not unto you. Nigh, it's not it's some, it's some word that we're we're alienated from because it's old school, old school King Queen's English found in the King James. But nigh means to come close to. Come close to God today. If you feel like he's changed, no, it ain't him. He don't change. It's us. We've changed. In fact, I'll prove my point. Since you got to church tonight, you've changed since you got here. Your hemoglobins have changed in your bloodstream. Hemoglobins will be the amount of oxygen found in your bloodstream. Your your sugar level levels, your sugar has change. You, it might be dipping. It might be spiking. You, you, your attention has changed. You're, you've grown a little bit older since you got here. Not me. I've gotten younger. But you, you've changed since you got here. But that's the thing. We change. But God does not. Amen. As we grow older and our mortality catches up with us and we remember and we realize that we ain't bulletproof. We start to realize that our joints still move like they used to. We're changing. We look at gas prices. They're changing. They'll probably change before we get over, get over with church tonight. Things change, but God does not change. That should encourage you that God does not change. People change. Paul 
Politics change. Seasons change. The weather changes. But God does not change. Ooh, preacher, can you tell us more about it? God don't change. When you look at it in the Greek and Spanish, it means God don't change. God don't change. That's good to know. That makes my pillow softer at night. Amen. We see here that whenever Athenaeus says, I will go and get that one man. I will go get him. He was, a, he was one who, who lived in sweet counsel with David. He was one who was close to him. And there's Psalms in Psalms, Psalm 60, 61, 62, and 63. David writes about his close confidant that they went to church together and now he's an enemy and he's lifted up his heel against David. And he turns it over to God if you read in Psalms chapter number 6. David does not go to get revenge against his, against his old confidant. He lets God handle that. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 22 says, Turn those offenses over to God who handles things justly. If you've been offended today, somebody's done you wrong, Turn it over to God. Let God handle that thing. Amen. We see in verse number 4, And the advice seen right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Once before, these elders were for David, supported David, and now they're on the side of Absalom, the enemy of David. It could be the pomp of Absalom. Absalom was very flashy. For God had ordained and commanded the children of Israel not to trust in chariots and horses. And what does Absalom do before he's even king? In the eyes of all the people, he goes get chariots and horses. He has men running in front of him saying, Get ready, here comes the prince. Here he comes. Make way. All about flash. I'll, I'll, I'll go, I'll show and no go is what he was. He was all show. He, it's like pulling up in a limousine, letting the paparazzi flash pictures at you, posing and making sure that you perceive yourself something that you're not. Because Absalom was not only the, he was not only vetting to be the leader of Israel, he was also to be appointed the spiritual leader of Israel. And he fails miserably because he was a murderer as he killed his own brother for the sin that took place in that period. At this point, David had put Absalom on the outskirts of Israel, told him to stay at arm's length, and David in his wisdom was probably waiting for Absalom to repent, but Absalom did not repent, and David restored him to the kingdom. We've learned from the story of Absalom, the worst thing that can happen to some people outside of their repentance is promotion. That God will humble you, to, to afflict you, to train you, to teach you, to make you into the image of Christ. The devil will give you all the kingdoms of the world. As long as you don't repent, as long as you serve Him, He made the same offer to Jesus Christ. So the devil still uses that offer today. Will you serve Him? Will you love Him and deny everything else and serve Him? He'll give you everything. So when the prosperity preacher stands in the pulpit and says, God wants you to have wealth, health, and prosperity, that you'll never get sick. That's the same story that Satan presented to Christ. He was trying to give him a crown without a cross. Christian, we are called to go through tribulation. We're called to have troubles and hardships. But we are to rest assured and trust in that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us and He has overcome the world. I'm preaching better than y'all acting. Amen. Maybe you'll be encouraged tonight as we continue in verse number 5. And Absalom said, Call Hushai. Now remember, Hushai was a close friend to David. We learned in the previous chapter that David sent Hushai back into the Israel. He sent him back to Jerusalem to kind of swerve and be counter to Athenaeum. That he was to be the one who would be a counterbalance and even usurp or t- uh, kick out from under the advice of the wise Athenaeum. 
It was good for David to put legs on his prayers. So a lot of people will pray, God, save my friend, save my neighbor, save my, save my cousin. But they don't put legs on their prayers. They don't actually go with their legs and invite them to church. They don't, they don't, it's kind of like leaning against a shovel and praying for a hole. Amen. You get what I'm saying? Put legs on your brain. Invite that person to church. Share the gospel with them. We got stacks of gospel tracks in the back. We got links and podcasts of teaching and preaching that you can share with people that they'll hear the good news and Bible teaching verse by verse. Put legs on your prayers. David, he was active to put Hushna into the court of Absalom. He was a wise man. You be wise as well. The Bible says that a wise soul seeks after the lost. Uh-uh. It's one thing to pray for your loved ones. The Bible says pray for the laborers. That Don't pray for the lost. Pray for the laborers. That they'll be out there gathering the sheaves like we sing in our hymnal. That we're bringing them in. Compelling them to hear the good news of the gospel. Uh, but that's a side note. In verse number 5, Absalom calls Hashia the archite. And also, and let us hear that he has to say. Absalom somehow for some reason in verse 5 calls for Hushia. He had no reason to call for him. But I want to let you know in chapter 17 that God orchestrates all things. Well, we spoke about how when you go to the symphony, I know we're very cultured here at the river. We, we go to symphonies and plays. I know we do. That funny looking little man who has a little baton and he stands in front of the, the, the symphony and he's causing them to play. He's doing more than swatting at flies. He has a baton and he's trying to sway along the, the, the music and trying to keep everybody on cue and beat. He is the symphony leader. He's the conductor. But our God is in the heavens and He does more than sway a baton. He comes with thunderings and lightnings and commands and He causes all things to work towards good for those who love Him. Our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. And we see that in chapter 17 because He orchestrated this moment here. Well, Hushia, He's called by Absalom. Hey, come here. Tell me what you think. In verse number 6, And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ethnia spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. And Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Asniel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged like a bear. Robber their cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Follow along with it, verse 9. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in the same other in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a, been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And then even the valiant men whose hearts are like the father of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Verse 11, But my counsel is that all of all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba by the sands to the sea for the multitude and you will go to battle in person. I want you to see how Hushia feeds into the ego of Absalom. First of all, he was, he was going against his, his contemporaries' advice. He says, you go personally. Absalom, like I told you, was all about show. 
Imagine Absalom in front of a mighty army. This fed into his ego. Oh, that's good. I like Ahushiah. Tell me more about that. Tell me what, what kind of army will I have? Well, he told him from Bathsheba to Dan. That's from the north to the south. All of Israel. Not just 12,000 men. Well, what Hushai was doing was buying David time. Because this was before Twitter, TikTok, MySpace, if you're on MySpace, if Facebook, and this before, this before email, before texting and cell phones. They had to run from the north to the south to gather such a great army. They had to amass a great army. But that took time. So this gave David time to get away where he needs to be, but also fed into the ego of Absalom. How easily we are snared by our own pride. Amen. How easily do we fall into the pits of our own pride? That's what took place here. Absalom is snared by his own pride. For one, he has a great and mighty army, and he's leading the charge. And that guarantees that he will be anything that David has. Even though they have quality, he has quantity. He will overrun them with troops upon troops from the north and from the south, going to take him down. Then verse 12, So shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found. And we shall light upon him as a dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. And if he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we will drag it into the valley until it's not a pebble to be found there. In verse number 13, I want to let you know that if you're around someone who's a yes man, someone who wants to tell you what you want to hear, you might be in trouble. I can tell you of a, one instance where... Uh, Brother Tracy was at the on the stage here doing one of the scriptures with the computer, and I walked over to Tracy before service after preaching pretty hard or during a part while I was praying. I said, "Hey, do I got any boogers?" And then he said, "Why you know you're good, but that's but I, I trusted him to tell me. And it's not that I don't trust you, but you probably must have just sit there and smile and just love me. You not tell me, but Tracy, I believe he would tell me. Hey, man, you got something hanging there, and it's gnarly. You need to wipe it. I, I believe he would. I know my wife would because I have preached here before, and she says, Kevin, wipe your mouth. I've seen. I remember when that took place. But you need to have people around you to say, Hey, you got some boogers. You got some stuff going on here. You need to. You can't live that way. You can't say that. You can't." go there. You can't watch that. You can't live that way. We see that Hushiah is feeding into the ego of Absalom. You do well to have people to call you on your stuff. Hey, you you can't do that. Your truest friends will tell you the truth. Amen. Amen. In verse 14, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushiah, the archite, is better than the counsel of Asniel. For the Lord has ordained to defeat the good counsel of Athniel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. If you missed that in verse 14. For the Lord has ordained to defeat the good counsel of Athniel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Wait a minute, I don't like that. You mean God had ordained to bring harm upon Absalom? Well, to help you understand that, I would like you to read it until it changes. It won't change. You will. I want to let you know that God ordains. God controls. God is in the heavens. Now I do believe and I know that there's bad things that take place in our society and in the world. Does that mean God ordains them? That means He allows them. 
Well, you might have somebody who's studying philosophy and they'll say, well, why do bad things happen to people? Why, do, why, why? why does God allow evil? If God were to finish evil and wipe evil out, none of us would exist because the Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. From birth I seek iniquity. That's what David tells us. So if God were to wipe evil away, then where would we be? Only by His mercy and His grace that He tarries and shows mercy. And to follow up on the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that only happened once. And that was Jesus Christ. And He volunteered. Amen, somebody. So we see here that God had decided to do this because He was going to bring harm upon Absalom. That God intervenes here. God does this. He orchestrates this. God is sovereign. Maybe here tonight you have troubles and you're, you're upset about this thing. I don't know if uh, that God would allow that thing to take place. How is cancer supposed to be good for me? How is, it, how is God allowing me to get hurt when I was younger? Why, why am I losing my job? How would God ordain that? How would school shootings be ordained by God? How would travesties and wars and famine be ordained by God? Well, I want to remind you what it says in Romans 8, that all things work towards good for those who trust God. I didn't say that the situation was good, but it will turn out for my good and His glory. Now, no matter what you went through, your suffering wasn't for any. It was not just for nothing. It was for the bringing you into the image of Christ. For the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. There is no more wrath for you. All God's wrath is poured out on Christ for your account. So why do you struggle? Why do you have hardships? To make you into the image of Christ. Well, now we've studied this quite before where we have a theology of suffering. Why we suffer is to make us into the image of Christ. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century, said, anything that presses me against the brock of ages is for my good. Anything that causes me to pray more, even if it's bad, sickness, lack, loss, is for my good. It makes me into the image of Christ. For truly, Christian, it is true. If you are living in a pie in the sky, skittles and rainbows and unicorns kind of life, you you would rarely ever pray, lest at least alone pick up your Bible and study what saith the Lord. For your life is easy. But whenever you're in the valley, that's when you seek Him out. When you cry out to Him to intervene, to help. So God sends afflictions our way to make us more like Jesus. Amen, preacher. He sees in verse 14. Uh, verse 14 should not disturb you. It should comfort you. For the Christian should lay his head on the pillow of sovereignty every night when he goes to bed. That my God is in control. I know gas is going to reach $7 before the end of the preacher don't say that. But if it doesn't, if it does, it doesn't matter. God is still on the throne. Doesn't matter if your candidate can ride a bicycle. Don't matter if he's in the, if he's in the Oval Office. Doesn't matter if he's banned from Twitter. Don't matter who your candidate is. Our king reigns. Our king is on the throne. Everything's going to be alright. Let me go and tell you, everything's going to be alright. Some of us are trusting our beans, bullets, and band-aids that we're hiding. Don't get me wrong. You can do that. That's fine because they'll, they'll probably skyrocket the price of beans, bullets, and band-aids. Probably, I know bullets have. Amen. Beans, they'll, they'll do it. Band-aids, we'll see. But I will let you know that God is still on the throne. God, is, this should take away every anxiety. If you're doing these things and you're hoarding a toilet paper or whatever out of fear... Don't do it out of fear. Do it because I want to provide for my family and my loved ones. Do it for that reason, but know that God is in control. And you can walk in peace and know you don't trust in the mighty dollar. dollar to, you don't trust in a COVID a a vaccine. You don't, you, don't trust in a, you don't trust in a mask. You don't trust your government. You don't trust, you don't trust your preacher, your deacons, or the denomination. You trust in God who's on the throne. Amen. So we see that God is sovereign. We see it in... 
Chapter 17, God is sovereign. There'll be a lot less heart attacks, a lot less worry, a lot less therapy bills, a lot less people diving into sin to find peace if we just wrapped our head around God being in control. Amen. Verse 15, And Hushai said to Zodok, and after the priest. Remember, he had friends in town. David had the priests, and they were to be the, the, the news wire that Hushai would tell the priests, and his sons would go and tell David. Now, to take place in verse 15, we see that thus and so and so did Athenel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus I have also counseled. Now, therefore, go send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over. Least the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now, Jonathan and Amaz were waiting at Enrol. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go tell King David, for they were not to be, in, not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So, they, so both of them went quickly and came to the house of a man in Burham and had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took a spread and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it. And nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants, verse 20, came to the house, the woman's house, they said, Where is Amaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. And after they had gone, the men came out of the well and went and told David, uh, the reason we have this whole escapade is to let you know from 15 on to verse 21, ain't nothing easy. Ain't nothing easy. You you might get up in the morning and say, I can't believe the milk spoiled. Life cannot be this hard. I can't believe the tire pressure in my tire is low. I can't believe I got these warning lights on my dash. Why can't things ever go easy for me? Why did a dog use the bathroom in the middle of the living room when I'm already late for work? Why did I wake up late for work? We will face troubles. There will be hardships. Why else would David write, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because you are with me. Jesus didn't tell us that we would have a sweet by and by. We would have a bed of roses and never thorns. But you will have troubles and tribulations. You will. But the good thing is He won't leave you and He will not forsake you. That's why we had this whole escapade of them hiding in a well. That's how we know this is not a fable written by men. This was inspired words of God written to us. We can relate to hardships. We've been through hardships. And we understand. We've lost loved ones. We've seen struggles. But through it all, God is still sovereign. Amen. Amen. In verse 21, I want to also let you know that I can't let it, you let, let it slip by. Even though in 14 on to 21, they weren't fatalists. A fatalist means that, oh, God's in control, so what do I, I don't need to do nothing anyway. I don't, need to, I don't need to do nothing. I want to remind you that when God created Adam in the garden, he had a job. He told him to till the ground, take care of the garden. God, David still had to do something. There's a responsibility, not David, but Adam had, some, he had something to do. There's a responsibility on each and every one of us. God is sovereign, but we are responsible before God as moral agents to do what He commanded us to do. How does that all fit together? That's above my pay grade. And the Pope don't know either. So you need to cry out to Jesus. And if you don't understand, that's okay. I can tell you, I don't know how electricity works. I don't know if it runs from positive to negative or negative to positive. But I know if I go to the back of this building and I flip that switch on, that light bulb comes on. And I trust that. 
I trust Jesus. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have all the mysteries of all the universe, but I trust that God is in control and He has required something of me to trust Him. And that's what I'm going to do. Y'all going to join me. Amen? Amen. Let's continue. We pick up in verse 21. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well. And they told the king David, and said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Athniel counted against you. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who was not crossed the Jordan. Verse 23. Then Athniel saw that his counsel was not followed. He saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. I want to kind of unpack verse 23. I remember the first time I was asked about suicide. I was a youth pastor. I was probably, probably like 23 or 24. I was sitting across from a little girl, probably 14 years old. Me and my wife were sitting on her porch in her subdivision. And that little freckle-faced, blue-eyed girl said... Pastor Kevin, Pastor Sherry, can you tell me if my, if my daddy is in hell? I said, well, I don't know. Well, why do you ask that? Well, my daddy killed himself when I was eight years old. And you, don't, you ain't lived until you've been asked a, a theological question like that. New, wet behind the ears. Hadn't really got into my Bible as I ought. But when you get asked questions like that, you start studying and start examining the words of God. Now, what do you think I said? Well, yeah, of course he died because he killed himself. That's the unforgivable sin. But I want to let you know, it's, that's not the unforgivable sin. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Now, you might say, well, how, how in the world is that unforgivable? You're dead. How are you going to ask for forgiveness? I will tell you this. In the book of Genesis, when Abraham is walking with Jesus and the two angels, and they're going towards Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham is trying to work with Jesus and says, if there's 50 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you still destroy the city? And Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus, before He was born on earth, He negotiates with Abraham. He says, yes, of course, I will, I will spare the city if there's 50 righteous in all the city. Abraham says, oh, okay, maybe there's not 50, but what if there's 30? Jesus in His mercy and grace. Because that's what Jesus is. He's full of mercy and grace when He's walking with Abraham. He says, of course, if there's 30, I will spare the whole city. Abraham continues to think. We'll skip a couple of numbers. He gets them down to 10. And Jesus says, if there's 10 righteous in all the city, I will spare the city. When I didn't tell you in between there, whenever Abraham was negotiating with Jesus. He said, Will not the Lord of all creation do what's right? If there's ten that are, that are righteous in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare the city? That really strikes my heart to let me know that Jesus is a just judge. He knows and He is fair and He is righteous and He's good in all His judgments. So as I looked at that little girl with the freckles in the eyes, her blue eyes with tears in her eyes, Getting ready to teach her theology because I'm sure some old-fashioned preacher who just says, yeah, he, went, he bust hell wide open. I can't say that. Because I don't know the mental state of that person when they took their life. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know if they were high on some kind of drug. I don't know if they were down in a valley and they weren't thinking clearly and they were just in a lot of pain. I don't know. But I do know that the Lord of all creation will decide what's right. 
So that's what I told her. I said, little girl, I ain't going to say her name. You might know her. I let God handle that. It's not my decision. But I can tell you that God is righteous and God is good and God is fair. We know of one other person who committed suicide in the Gospels. That was Judas. These, these suicides run parallel to one another. We see that Athenio hung himself. I don't know if he had wisdom to see that what Absalom was about to do was foolish. Or he knew that David will come back and he will reign again and he will deal with Athenia. But either way, if you're here today and you've contemplated suicide, I want to let you know that the pain that you're feeling, it doesn't go away when you commit suicide. All it does is take your pain and put it on your relatives and your loved ones because they will miss you and long for you. I'd rather you talk to me about suicide. Talk to me, your pastor. Talk to one of the deacons. Speak to somebody about the situation you're in. For there's always hope. Maybe it's dark where you are. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you feel like there's no reason for living. Go ahead and say the phrase, it's good to be alive right now. It's good to be here or just to hear this if you're listening by podcast. Our God is in the heavens. There is always hope. Amen. Why are you hearing this? So I've been there, I understand. I know what it's like not to have hope. Not to, not to understand what's going on and to be so prideful to think it's all about me. See, suicide is truly prideful. I don't like where I am, what I'm going through. Truly it's selfish. Whoever you are, if you're contemplating suicide, don't be selfish. You're to lay yourself down before Jesus Christ. Give your life to Him and live for Him. Not for your pleasures. Because that's the thing. In our society, we'll do anything to get away from suffering. Athniel, he, he, he suffered here. He was out of favor with the king. But we're going to see, if you will turn to Matthew chapter 27, if we'll turn there quickly with me, and we probably won't be coming back to 2 Samuel, so you can let it go. We'll pick up there when we get back together next Wednesday. But Matthew 27, 3-7, let's look at the instance whenever, whenever Judas actually commits suicide. In Matthew 27, 3-7, Matthew 27, verse number 3. It's in the New Testament all the way to the right. I want you to find it. We can remember that Judas was a pastor. He was a preacher. He was one of, one of the twelve disciples out of the seventy-two that Jesus chose. And yet, and yet, when Judas betrayed Jesus, he knew enough about Jesus that if he truly repented and came to Jesus, Jesus would have forgave him. He knew that. But he does not do it in verse, verse number 3 of chapter 27 in Matthew 27, verse number 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is it to us? See it to yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. You might read verse 3, 4, and 5 and say that it looks like Judas repented. No, Judas did not repent. It said that he's sorrowful. He's in immense pain. He's guilty. He feels the guilt. 
That means there has to be something more than feeling bad for your sins to convert you and change you. Uh, if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. As Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he's teaching them about suffering. He's teaching them about worldly sorrow. And 2 Corinthians, over to the right, just a few, a good chunk in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8 through 10. We'll read along in chapter number 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8 through 10. He's going to teach us about suffering. He teaches us about regret and teaches us about repentance. In chapter 7, verse number 8 in 2 Corinthians, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that letter later grieved you, though only for a little while. What Paul was saying here in chapter number 7, verse 8, is that Paul wrote a harsh letter to the church in Corinth. He said, I know it grieved you. And I feel bad about it, but not really, because it led you to repentance. He's saying that your suffering and your feeling bad and your guilt led to repentance. That if you go to a church where it's all sugars and spice and everything nice, puppies and rainbows, if it always makes you feel good and never challenges you or makes you uncomfortable in correction, you're probably going to the wrong church. Like I said earlier, you don't need to be around yes men. Go to a church where they'll say, this is a sin. If you are doing this, stop doing that. And it's not enough to feel guilty and bad about your sin. Because Paul continues in verse number 9, as it is I rejoice. Not because you were grieved. Not in verse number 9. He says, I ain't glad that you're feeling sad. I'm not happy. I'm not sadistic. I'm not just beating the flock for fun. In verse number 9. But because you agreed into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. In verse number 9, Paul was saying, you felt bad enough to repent. There are those who are, who are guilty and they, they carry their guilt. Almost to the point of suicide. Finally the guilt will take their, their life. You're grieved and you're suffering. And you feel bad about it. You carry it around with you every day. You can feel it like it's sitting on your chest. No matter if it's indulgence in overeating or drinking, pornography, lust, gossip, envy. Those things you feel bad. Oh, I feel bad. I don't like when the preacher talks about those things. It just makes me feel bad. Shacking up outside the marriage bed. Even the Bible says don't even have the appearance of evil. Going to places you should not be. Talking about with corrupt communication like it says in Ephesians. Let no corrupt communication come from your mouth. Don't even let shady words roll out of your tongue that dishonors God and dishonors what He had done for us at the cross. I feel bad about those things. I'm to make you feel uncomfortable about that. I'm to afflict the comfortable. Because I don't want you to ride your pew right on into hell. Oh, I'm on the, I'm on the roll. I'm a member here. I tithe. I, I, I'm very important here. At the river. Keep your tithes. If that's what it means. Keep your tithes. Turn your heart over to Jesus and repent. That's what we're going for. I'm not after your checkbook. Repentance is the key. Paul says, I'm not happy that I grieve you. But if it leads to godly sorrow and repentance, that's what matters. In verse number 10, because I want you to see this. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces 
death. Judas had worldly, worldly grief. His grief drove him to suicide. Whoever you are here today, what it is truly is that you don't want to be found out about your sins. Because you might be an outstanding member of society. Maybe you're an important person in the neighborhood. Maybe you're found in our community. Maybe you're outside the community. But if everybody knew your dirty little secrets, if everybody knew how the dirt that you do, the sins, it would crush you. Because everybody knew. And that's your biggest fear. You sweat bullets. You, you, you're nervous about it right now. You're afraid that somebody's going to stand up and say, well, so they do this, it's all out in the open. And you'll be ruined. But it don't even bother you that God knows. God knows. That's worldly grief. You're, you're worried that somebody's going to find out. That they'll read the emails. That they'll know where you've been. They'll, they'll track your phone. They'll look at the text. They'll, they'll know where you go when you leave and go out of town. They'll, they'll know what you talk about in private conversation. They'll find out. That's worldly grief. But godly grief leads to repentance. Knowing that you are in right standing with God today. That you can be forgiven of your sins. What if your wife found out? You, you, would, you would just shrink up and die. What if your pastor found out you did that or said that? That's worldly grief. And that leads to death. But godly repentance leads to life. Don't fear man. Come to Him. Throw yourself down. God, it's okay. I don't care. I, don't, I prefer them not to know. But Lord, I'm bringing it to You. I repent before You. For Judas. Judas had worldly grief. He knew that he betrayed an innocent man. And he threw the money down. He didn't want anything to do with it. But he didn't repent. He didn't come to God. He didn't come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. You miss it by that much. Worldly grief and godly grief. Where are you? Are you grieving because of your gossip? Are you grieving because of your lust? Are you grieving because of your envy? Do you grieve because of your dishonoring the Sabbath day? Do you grieve of the murderous and unforgiveness heart that you carry and the grudge that you still carry from years ago? Do you grieve before God? Let alone what anybody else thinks. That's, that's a second-hand issue. It's you and God on judgment day. And He will open the book and He will judge you according to all your works, all that you've sown. Are you on right standing with Him? Godly grief. Preacher, you're punching below the belt tonight. I'm going for the conscience. Are you in right standing with God? Do you hide anything from Him? Do you keep Him out of this section of your life? No, you can't go over here. You can't go in my kitchen. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want you to see the, the beer bottles. I don't want you to see that. I don't want you going with me as I go out to eat because I'm a glutton and I overeat. I don't, I don't want you to go with me as I watch TV because I, I lust. I, I can't let you talk to me while I'm talking on the phone because you'll hear my wicked conversations. You just can't. Godly grief. Godly grief is when you're repentance. Little Johnny was in Sunday school. His mama saw, taught Sunday school. Little Johnny... Kept standing up in the chair. Mama told him, sit down. Get, get out of that chair and sit on your bottom. Little Johnny did not listen to Mommy. Mommy snatched little Johnny up, poured that hide out. And he sat down with tears in the eyes. He looks at his mama and says, Mama, 
on the outside I'm sitting down, but on the inside I'm still standing. Maybe you're here tonight and you might have tears just like Judas. He wept, but you're still standing up and rebelling against God. You just don't want to be found out. That's all it is. Truth is, probably most of us know. People think they hide their sins, but we all see them. And it only just affects you, it affects everybody. It causes us to weep over you as we continue to pray for you. But you will not repent. That's okay. Paul, Paul said turn them out. Call them out. Say, hey, you're doing this and you're doing that. That don't mean we're better than anybody. It's church discipline. We're just correcting you. Like I said, you don't need to be around people who just say, yeah, yeah, everything's okay. You ain't got no boogers on your face. You're doing good. You don't... Just keep putting 20s in the offering plate and living however you want. No. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Honor Him. Do you feel bad enough about your sins that you don't sin that way anymore? That's repentance. When you feel bad enough about your sins that you don't do that anymore. I want to let you know that you're only forgiven of the sins you renounce and you never do again. If you continue in that sin, you are not forgiven of it. If you make plans to sin, you're not forgiven of that. Repent of your sins while you can. The Bible tells us in the book of James that when sin is conceived, it brings forth death and it swallows you whole and ruins you. But preacher, I'm struggling. That's the point. If you're struggling. If you have not given yourself over to a new master, a sin who will reign over you and ruin you, giving your life to the merciless, I'm pleading for your soul tonight. Some of you have set your eyes on what you want. I want to do this and nobody's going to talk me out of it. I want to stand in front of you as you're running towards the gates of hell. I want you to turn your heart towards Jesus. Repent. Throw those things down and trust in Him. I know you don't hear preaching like this every day. We pretty much hear it every Sunday and Wednesday here. But it's for our good. What good is it to go to a surgeon when you know you're deathly sick and they joke with you and pinch your nose and tell stories and little fuzzy stories and just laugh it off and send you home and you know you're infected with a terminal illness. That's not a good doctor. One who'll sit down with you and tell you how serious it is and tell you if you take this medicine, if you take this medicine, it will heal you. It will hold you and keep you. Now you've heard the medicine. It's repent. Many of you will take that medicine home and put it on the shelf and bring all your friends over and say, look at this medicine. This is the best medicine there is. I love this medicine. Look right here, it's got my name on it. This is the best medicine. And continue to stay in your illness and your sin. And that death will rule over you and kill you. But the remedy, the antidote is repentance. Take the repentance. Here God, here I am. Forgive me, wash me. Maybe you don't know how to repent. It's as simple as throwing those sins down and saying, I renounce these things. I don't want them in my life. Forgive me of my anger and my bitterness. Forgive me of my pride, believing I could do it all by myself. Forgive me. Forgive me of harboring grudges. Forgive me of gossip. Forgive me of anger and bitterness. Forgive me, dear Jesus. Here I am. Will you have me? Notice I didn't ask you to ask Jesus into your heart. Will He have you? I want to let you know that He won't turn you away. Jesus forgives sinners because that's That's all there is. Let's bow our heads and pray.